0: Welcome back to Talk Evidence, your fortnightly look at the evidence around Covid and some other stuff occasionally. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor for the BMJ, and I'm reclaiming my chair from Helen. As always, she's been doing a lot of the heavy lifting on this podcast. So joining me, as ever, are Helen MacDonald, Reston GP and UK Research Editor for the BMJ. And Carl Hennigan, Editor-in-Chief of BMJ, Evidence-Based Medicine, and on the side, a professor at Oxford and a GP. Hi, guys. Hi, Hi. Duncan. So, uh, yeah, I was off. I was on holiday last week, um, which was very nice. But you guys were hard at work. And uh, Carl, I see you've been moonlighting a bit.
1: Yeah, we spotted something by you in The Spectator. Oh, sorry about
2: world, that. But we? I think we've been doing a lot of work just trying to write for the public, the wider audience and policy about some of the issues that we think are really important. And we've been focusing on testing because there's a lot of testing going on right now around the globe. And we've covered antibody testing. We've covered PCR testing here. But we're trying to get a real understanding of when you get a positive test, Does it actually mean that cases are rising and we've Mm. been trying to dig into that?
1: So can I ask you some questions? Because, so I understood about the PCR tests that the main problem with these tests was false negatives. So people having COVID, but the test was showing negative. But you're saying there's um, a slightly different problem emerging now around what a positive test means.
2: Yeah, well, look, it's really important where we are in the cycle is when you had a lot of disease, high prevalence of COVID circulating, then the false negatives really matter. The sensitivity of the test is important because you can have thousands of people with disease and a high percentage of them, about 20%, were actually false negative tests. But that's a different problem when the prevalence is very low. When you get to very low prevalences, like now in the UK, ONS is reporting about five in ten thousand people have active infection. The specificity of the test becomes much more important, particularly if you have a positive test. Now, is it more likely to be a false positive than a true
1: positive? Oh, I see what you mean. And right, so now, why would it? Why would it be a, a um, false positive? What, what's driving? the propensity of the test to give
2: right so this is what we've been working on we've been doing a review that we've just put out on med archive and it's really interesting we're going to talk about living reviews but we we call this an open review because it's true there's so much emerging evidence all the time you can't definitively say we've got the answer because as soon as you put it out there there's another couple of studies come along and we've been looking at the relationship of pcr to actually culture of live virus, which is what you consider is the gold standard, and there are about sixteen studies out there that have looked at the relationship of these two and it's interesting our interpretation and understanding of PCR is evolving, but I think across the board, we have increased testing in a massive way without thinking through what we're doing and trying to just explain this clearly the test PCR takes a bit of RNA and creates a DNA copy. It then amplifies it in cycles exponentially. One, two, four, eight. Okay? So you can see with each cycle, you can get up to millions of copies, and in fact billions quite quickly. And these tests can go up to about 45 different... So these
1: cycles are happening in a lab, or they're happening in your body?
2: No, in the lab. That's what real-time PCR does. In the lab? Yeah. In in effect... You create a copper of DNA and then keep amplifying it. What you also mm-hmm. do then is stick a bit of fluorescence to the DNA and watch and try and quantify the amount of light emitted. And that light, when it gets to a certain threshold, is when you say it's a positive test.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Now, there's a relationship in many of these papers that says once you get above 25 cycles... You're less likely to have on board viable live virus, and 25 cycles is about equivalent to you had a million copies of the RNA in a milliliter of sample, roughly around about there. The more cycles you go up to, the less virus you've got on board. The less cycles, the more virus you've got on board. Mm. So, if you're so follow- this is
1: about not having like a. Yes, no test, but about trying to choose some kind of threshold when you say this is an active infection that's happening now as opposed to something that's totally insignificant or something that maybe happened some time ago and now it's dying down.
2: Correct. And one of the things why is because it picks up a fragment of RNA, about 20 nucleotides, so it's not that big a piece of RNA. And that RNA degrades much slower than when when you've got rid of the active virus. So you get rid of the active virus infection in about eight days. But some people can still be excreting the RNA through their nose or through the feces up to 60 days. And in some cases, up to 90 days after they've had Mm -hmm. active infection. You can go back and pick up these people and you think they're positive with active infection. But in the absence of symptoms, it is now unclear what actually is happening in that individual. All you can say is they have a piece of this RNA which is related to the SARS-CoV-2 virus.
0: So the interesting bit there is, I mean, we know PCR picks up tiny amounts of DNA, um, that's why, you know, it's used for uh, uh, DNA testing in, in crime scenes and things. You know, it's, it, can, it can amplify really tiny samples. And it seems like, did that just get forgotten when we started doing testing? Like, how did we not figure this through?
2: Yeah, and I think this is the point we made in the article. It's going back to the old Will, William Osler. Listen to the patient he's telling the Ruda diagnosis. Well, actually, that's gone out the window with this new biotech mass screening approach. There's no need for symptoms and signs. There's no need for confirmatory other diagnostic tests. So, for instance, a CT scan that says you've got viral pneumonia. All you need is a very weak test. And it's interesting, there's a rapid response in the BMJ to one of the diagnostic articles from a group of clinicians and public health doctors in Wales who found 26 tests amongst the people they were testing in routine testing And of them, 19 were weak positives, i.e. the cycle threshold was above 35, and one of them was up to 43. When they retested all 19, all 19 were negative. And one of the patients had actually had uh, a PCR positive test three months before, and had antibodies on board. So this is where you hear these stories where they go, oh, somebody's got it a second time. No, actually... Their high chances are they're shedding RNA still that takes a long time to degrade. Now, you can understand the importance of this. Imagine if you was going for an operation. Imagine if you was going for uh, some important aspect you wanted to do and suddenly you've got a PCR positive test. And so I think this threshold is really important. and We have to understand them.
1: I think we should stop there before we get too upset or before I get too obsessed with testing again. We're going to have John Deeks on here again.
0: So, yeah, there's a danger we will get obsessed with testing again. And, uh, you know, this is going to go round and round. We've always said this. This is going to take a long time to unpack. So I'm sure we'll hear from you about this in the future, Carl. Now, Last week we wanted to talk about treatment and particularly a new living meta-analysis on treatment for COVID but we couldn't do that um, but Helen this week you've managed to uh, we finally I've published delivered. it and you've managed to uh, talk to, to some of the authors too.
1: Yes his content wasn't quite ready um, and it's loosely tied to a project which uh, I've been involved in um, for some years now, the BMJ's Rapid Recommendation Series, which is a collaboration um, with the MAGIC Foundation, who are made up of doctors, methodologists, um, who whose joy in life is to produce timely, high-quality, evidence-based guidance. And at the start of the pandemic, um, the MAGIC team and I were talking about what we might do Um, through the pandemic to be useful and and an idea that kind of um, we settled on was around COVID treatments and I think this was a good choice because drugs were being prescribed in the early days on very very shaky evidence and we knew high quality trials were coming um, and we knew that there would be a need to try and bring those together to make sense of them and not just to publish the evidence but also to provide clinicians with guidance on what that might mean so this is this is a living project I'm going to call it a living project it's very much an evolution and there are two elements that have been published so far one as Duncan said is the living systematic review and network meta-analysis of randomized controlled trial evidence on the treatments of COVID-19 and this is a live publication that's going to alter over time and it will take readers on a journey and me (laughs) from very little certainty on which drugs might work or not towards hopefully a clearer picture over the coming months and it's being fed by very detailed searches and including and pulling in data from um, all the big and the small uh, trials that are going on pulling those together um, and because it's in a network then beginning to um, allow comparisons between the drugs if and when that becomes appropriate and the second thing we've published is the first clinical practice guideline on the use of remdesivir And the key trigger for that was the recovery trial, which was all the way back in May. That seems like an awfully long time ago now. um, Forever in COVID. (laughs) Forever indeed. um, Where we had some evidence that it might improve time to symptom resolution. um, And they had some data which was really quite uncertain around um, death. So this guidance is putting that evidence in context um, using guideline methodology. uh, So involving methodologists, healthcare professionals, patients and the public, And considering things like their values and preferences and resources, practical issues to reach a judgment about whether it's worth it. And we'll include the links to both the papers so you can find them. The key things you really need to know from the Living Network meta-analysis, so from the kind of pure, if you like, evidence, is that despite a lot of rhetoric and politics and hype we still don't know very much about these drugs at all um so when you look at the network plot which looks a bit like a spider web where the drugs sit around the edge and the lines connect them up as data accumulates this is basically empty it looks like (laughs) something my children might start to do a dot to dot on but at the moment it doesn't have very much there and most of this evidence that's coming through is about people with severe disease so people who are at least in hospital um and probably um in intensive care a lot of them and at the moment the clearest evidence we have is for systemic so oral or intravenous glucocorticosteroids, and there's moderate evidence there so it's probable that both death and ventilation is reduced using those treatments compared with standard care in people with severe disease but a lot of the evidence otherwise is still of very low or low certainty or quality which means that the authors think that the true numbers are either probably or or might be markedly different from the estimates. So there are three drugs with very low quality evidence that they they might reduce symptom duration. And those include remdesivir, but also it's possible that leponavir ritonavir does that, which is otherwise known as calicha, or also hydroxychloroquine is still in the running for that. So despite the Data from the recovery trial on remdesivir, there's still quite a lot of uncertainty around those effects. And the guideline panel looking at remdesivir found making a recommendation quite tough. There wasn't enough evidence to make a strong recommendation. So instead, they suggest use of remdesivir in people with very severe disease, in essence, um, people who need to be in ITU because they require that kind of support. The guideline group that we have has not yet made recommendations on the steroid evidence, but that work is planned. And since this paper has been published, there's also been some new data emerge on hydroxychloroquine, which is going to go into the next version of the meta-analysis, which will be submitted probably around the time this podcast goes out, and will also be linked to some guidance, um, which is planned underway. And a couple of days ago, I spoke with Bram Rorschwerk. Associate Professor at McMaster University and Consultant Intensivist at Hamilton Health Sciences, who was the Methods Chair of the Guideline. And also with Reed Semenek, who is a General Internist from McMaster also, and is a key author on the Living Network Meta-Analysis. And I began by talking with Reed about why do a Living Network Meta-Analysis and the tension of when to publish the first version aside from the fact that we wanted to do some recommendations on remdesivir?
3: Because we're at the point now that there are a lot of trials and some of them very big trials coming out that that are really gonna give us a sense of what the effects are on on many different outcomes for COVID. Um, The struggle is is, uh, um, when there's so many different drugs being tested at the same time, um, that uh, comparing the effectiveness between different drugs Um, can only be done with a network meta-analysis. And so as opposed to a typical pairwise meta-analysis where there's um, drug A against drug B, and you have a number of different trials, and you combine them all, you get one estimate for that comparison, um, it doesn't tell you anything about how good that drug A does against drug C. And for some of these comparisons, that might be important. Some of them, it may not be important at all. Um, but the nice thing about a network meta-analysis is that it synthesizes all of the trial results for all of the different drugs um, at the same time. So it's really like a snapshot about all of the trial evidence on on drug treatments all at once, which I think is really helpful. In particular, because there's so much, there's just so much out there that it's hard to keep track of as a as a clinician and so having one place where you can go to find the evidence on all the different drugs I think will be really helpful.
1: This network meta-analysis is published in the BMJ and one tension we felt as this went through the process and something that we've seen online is this idea of when is there enough information to start this thing Um, and there are people and I confess to being one of them who are interested in knowing even Now, if the answer is we don't really know if any of those treatments work, I like the idea of having something out there that makes that clear and then watching the story of it evolve. And there's this tension between people who maybe feel a bit like that and then people who feel like, especially as a high profile journal, you shouldn't be putting out information until things are much, much clearer than this. And you can give people Clear answers: Yes, it works, or no, it doesn't, or it works on this outcome, or um, for this particular drug. How how did that feel as you were building the review, and and how do you deal with those tensions?
3: Well, I mean, from from the COVID perspective, it's really interesting because at the beginning and and even now, to an extent, um, you know, clinicians and myself included, were throwing all these different drugs at people um, without really any evidence. Hoping that they in many cases, just hoping that they might work, things like ivermectin or hydroxychloroquine, and there seems to be all these different camps of people who are in different camps for different drugs and advocating for their use and so I mean, I personally agree with you that having a sense of the quality of the evidence, even if it 's very low and the message is that we really just don 't know if they work or not, is helpful, helpful for decision makers, helpful for clinicians and 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 everybody. But um, certainly it was a it was a challenge and, and some of the peer reviewers and, and and commenters on Twitter have pointed out that it's so early that for many of these drugs, why even publish these this data? And especially, you know, when there's early small trials, they tend to be they often tend to be more positive than the actual results finally end up being when you do get definitive bigger trials and so at this stage there's there's a real risk of you know in some cases we think of this as publication bias but we there's a real risk of overselling the benefit of some of these therapies based on small trials trials that might not be blinded or have other limitations
1: I've got a question for both of you. So, Duncan, I wanted to ask you as a layperson where you stand on this issue of wanting to know even if things are uncertain versus only really wanting to know something when there's something to say.
0: So I think there's two bits to this. Kind of me personally, I think a good way of dealing with uncertainty and anxiety around that uncertainty and, you know, in COVID there's been a lot of that is knowing what you don't know and knowing potentially when you know that information might be available without knowing what you don't know everything just becomes this big sort of massive uncertainty and it's uh i don't know i just find personally something a bit comforting about that
1: but you think you might be abnormal in some way
0: <laughs> i wonder i mean I, sitting here listening to you guys each week as well is uh, is a bit different too but i think the other bit to it is You know, when you watch the news and you see politicians or any particular individual try and express certainty over uh, a treatment, you know, hydroxychloroquine if you're Trump or something. Again, at that point, it's really important for people like the BMJ, you know, authority figures to say, no, that's wrong. We don't know yet. The evidence, we've been really careful, we're looking at it and no, we don't understand what Um, the truth is yet. So any, uh, it can help gauge, you know, that rhetoric that's going on.
1: And Carl, what do you think? I mean, you are, I guess, a reader of the BMJ before you became one of our specialty journal editors, and you should feel free to speak freely. But do you, (laughs) do you kind of expect that um, higher profile medical journals should be publishing evidence when things are uncertain?
2: So, look, I'm a big fan of this project, Living Reviews. I think this is the way forward. Where I have a slight difficulty is providing a recommendation when there's still uncertainty. And I think that's where you get into a bit of a a grey area. And I noticed when he said, look, we're going to make a recommendation on remdesivir, despite the fact it's low-quality evidence and it's still emerging. And I think that's the key, you see, is I would refrain from that. Be clear about... What's most beneficial? Here's the guidance. Other stuff here, you've got nine trials upcoming. So there are, there are a couple of things I think this would really work with. When you hover on it, I'd like to see the information from figure two, which gives you the effect sizes, so that the clinician can look at it and go, oh, I see where we are. I see what the effect sizes are looking like and the size of the uncertainty. Do you think think you're
1: a bit unusual, Carl, in that you can hover on that and know what that means and in effect sort of make a recommendation in your own head? Because clinical practice continues in the face of uncertainty.
2: That's what what doctors do, though. So you
1: you still have to make a decision to give the drug or not give the drug.
2: And that's the role of doctors and that's the role of general practitioners, healthcare professionals, and I think it's really important to understand that's what we do. When it's very clear, the recommendations are clear about the evidence, doctors that operate, health practitioners, paramedics all understand what to do. Aspirin, heart attack, dexamethasone in the context of somebody who's on ICU. We get the evidence is clear, but it's more nuanced when it's unclear. And I think that is where you have to refrain. I think it would be helpful to give the link as well to the sort of upcoming trials as well so you could just go in and say right what's happening is there another big trial about to report okay I'll have more certainty I can come back in a week's time I'm going to make the decision now in a week's time that may change
1: well you should find that in the paper soon because uh, we have a plan to do that but that is a good place I think to come to Bram who chaired the guideline group um, to perhaps address some of the concerns you have Carl about Um, making recommendations with so much uncertainty.
4: So we formally assessed uh, the results of Reed's network meta-analysis, specifically remdesivir, looking at the benefits. And you said the main benefits were really looking at the uh, decrease uh, in duration of symptomatology or an improvement in time to clinical resolution. And uh, as well, any potential or harms. We uh, considered things like patient values and preferences, the feasibility acceptability the certainty of evidence and we ended up in this in this position as you may have mentioned of making a conditional or weak recommendation for administering uh, remdesivir to patients with severe covid illness
1: now we should pause there because i think uh, this is this is more guideline jargon isn't it <laughs> a weak recommendation so what does what does a normal person or or a patient understand by a weak recommendation
4: yeah, I'm I'm glad you asked. You know, as opposed to a strong recommendation which is meant to be standard of care, a weak recommendation rec- recognizes that, you know, the majority of patients would choose and clinicians would choose to administer remdesivir, but it also recognizes that there might be a large minority that that don't. And a lo- the reason why we we introduce this uncertainty, this this idea that it, it can, should not be standard of care, but rather applied at an in individual patient level, is around the fact that we're still very uncertain about the effect on remdesivir on outcomes like mortality, need for invasive mechanical ventilation, or going on a ventilator, uh, and other really important outcomes that we think are crucial to patients. So you know, given the fact that the evidence of benefit was not overwhelming. We didn't feel comfortable coming down strongly and saying, just do it, make sure every single patient Mm. gets this. Uh, But again, given the signals that we had, the panel felt like uh, at least the majority of people would want it.
1: And you also advised that trials... Of remdesivir should continue, which was which was also quite interesting. Tell us more about the panel's thoughts around that.
4: Given this ongoing uncertainty, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, contexts where remdesivir uh, may not be used currently, and you know, you think about again, it's a very costly drug. You think about resource poor settings, um, this sort of stuff. It's it's it, prioritizing remdesivir might be distracting against other interventions that we know are helpful, like good supportive therapy. And, you know, we'll never improve our estimates or our understanding of the effectiveness of remdesivir unless we do ongoing trials. And, and given the uncertainty that persists, the panel felt quite strongly that equipoise or, or enough uncertainty to feel comfortable randomizing patients to remdesivir or placebo persisted, that, that we really felt like trials should continue evaluating this drug uh, in the setting of severe COVID illness. And it's it's a bit uncommon for guideline panels to make such a strong statement but our, our panel felt very strongly about uh, recommending that trials do continue evaluating this drug in COVID.
1: And of course those aren't trials starting from scratch many of those trials were already underway so it's about those trials continuing hopefully to give us an answer relatively soon. Do we, do we have any news on on that?
4: Absolutely, and probably the biggest one, uh, folks may have heard about evaluating remdesivir is the Solidarity trial, which uh, was run and administered through the WHO, including uh, countries around the world. Uh, here in Canada, we had an offshoot uh, of Solidarity, and from what I've heard, is that they have finished uh, enrollment, and actually, we should see results uh, of remdesivir from Solidarity soon. But even beyond this, there are many other smaller trials evaluating remdesivir, and you know, in the future, hopefully, they'll be included in in READ and Teams network meta-analysis and provide more um, certain uh, estimates of effect on the outcomes that we care about.
1: So actually, Carl, having listened to Bram, I don't feel like you're that far apart from him. I just think that you're not a fan of weak recommendations. (laughs) But it does highlight that there is this difficult um, tension as evidence emerges on this drug and a need To be open about the uncertainties, to be quite nuanced in how the recommendations and discussion unfolds and and really that things need to live because as new data comes from solidarity and other trials, um, there's going to be a need for that panel to look at the remdesivir um, recommendation again, as it becomes clear that either it does or it doesn't work as well as we understand now or that ongoing equipoise remains and the equipoise thing I thought was quite interesting and one thing that emerged in the panel discussion around equipoise or a kind of tension that I really felt was this idea of the individual versus more of a public health system perspective so a, a patient might think there's enough certainty here that if I was severely ill and my duration of illness could be shortened or it might be I, I might be happy to take that risk versus a healthcare provider who has resource considerations perhaps to make who really may wish to see the outcomes on ICU admission or ventilation or death to really try and consider whether it's value for money.
2: It's quite a lot of complicated stuff you've put in there, aren't you? I think, I think this idea that equipoise is really important but the problem is In a new disease, when you've got seriously unwell patients, it's very difficult to step back and say, look, let's enter them into a trial. Because, and I've seen this particularly with some important questions around things like coagulation treatment, is another area where people say, look, we know what to do. And other people say, no, we need trials. We need to understand what the correct doses are. I think this is hopefully a watershed moment where... The recovery trial, like what happens with the WHO, starts to increase the collaboration. Because that's an important aspect. You need much larger trials done efficiently in a standardised way. That means these living reviews become much easier to update with accurate and information that's clear and coherent and standardised. That's important. I'll come back to the point on the recommendations. I think you lose credibility if you keep flip-flopping your recommendations. One minute you're saying, maybe give it, the next minute you're going, oh, the evidence is going that way. And guidelines can never resist the temptation to give recommendations. And some of them give huge numbers of recommendations on poor quality evidence. I think they'd be incredibly improved if they just said, look, here's the seven or eight areas where there's very clear evidence. Here's the areas where there's uncertainty. We'd like that reduced. And to now... We're going to leave that to individual clinicians to understand the evidence and apply it to the patients as they see in the context and leave it to that individual decision-making.
1: I'm interested not only in your response, Carl, as interesting as it is, um, but also how the broader world has received these articles because they've been up online on bmj.com for a couple of weeks. They're freely available, so they can be read by healthcare workers, policy makers, they can be read by patients and the public, they can be read by anybody. And we have an open response or letter system on bmj.com through which people can send feedback. They've been very widely read. I think I think the research paper's had about 70,000-odd reads now, um, and they've both had huge engagement on um, Twitter and social media So I also wanted Reid to pick up on some of the more tricky aspects of the feedback that have come through so far because the beauty of this living project is that it's ongoing so we can adjust aspects of the research paper and improve its reporting where it's not clear for example. We can give feedback to the guideline development group about the recommendation they've made or how it's reported and it just seems like a real opportunity for, for living content to really leverage post-publication review from a whole range of um, different types of people. And we know we've got to work harder with these articles because there is just such intense public interest and scrutiny on, on drugs for COVID at the moment. So let's hear Reed's thoughts.
3: For me, the biggest surprise that I saw on, on Twitter was that it was picked up and we measured, I think, eight different outcomes um, of varying importance to patients, and, and clearly preventing death is the most important thing, and our message for most of the drugs was that we really don't know if they prevent death or not, and that's the most important message, I think, that came from our network meta-analysis, but one of the outcomes, time to symptom resolution, seemed to show um impressive benefit for hydroxychloroquine, and it was the only outcome that showed any suggestion of a benefit for hydroxychloroquine and even compared to other drugs. But it, it seemed to have been picked up by folks who are strongly supportive of hydroxychloroquine. And that message was sort of picked from the, what I thought were the basement bottom part, not important part of our article and, and, and amplified, which is too bad because it, you know, the certainty around that is so low. We have no idea if hydroxychloroquine reduces time to symptom resolution, we're a bit more certain in remdesivir or not, and, and, and how big that effect might be. And so I think the nice thing about having a living network meta-analysis is that actually we can take a lot of this feedback and, and learn from this. And with the next iterations, we can update and be a little bit more clear about our presentation. So that, I thought that was really interesting. so yeah helen you,
0: as you said, you know um people are responding to this in rapid recommendations. Are you looking anywhere in particular for um people to maybe if they've got ideas about how it could devolve in a in a useful way um that they should get in touch?
1: yeah, I think just share share your thoughts publicly on b m j dot com you just go to the link where the article is um and there's a button that says respond to this article, write your name in and tell us um If it's been useful to you, if not, why not? And how it could be better.
0: I mean, we talked uh, a lot about uncertainty, where even though there's all this this evidence being accumulated and research going on. But Helen, I remember a while ago, you were a little bit obsessed with, uh, you know, rehab, what's going to happen to people after COVID. And it seems like there's even more uncertainty there um, and a new article has just been published on bmj.com by yeah i just wanted
1: to touch on it um briefly it's about um i guess what i don't know if i saw this on a bmj internal tracker sheet It's been it's been <laughs> labeled as long covid so that's that's how i labeled it in my head uh when i was thinking about it today but when we did our rehabilitation episode a few weeks back we talked about the fact that it was on GP's radars and it was also on um, rehabilitation consultants radars that there are people who either after severe illness or after much more minor symptoms were feeling unwell for a protracted period of time after COVID and so I think this article will be interesting particularly for those people and including those working in primary care and The kind of best estimate that they propose is that around one in 10 people get some kind of long term symptoms, most commonly cough, fever or fatigue, some of which may come and go over a number of weeks. And from an evidence perspective, I thought it was quite interesting to see how the authors tried to put this article together in in an evidence based way. They're very, very open about the fact there are no recommendations here. They've taken a very pragmatic approach to putting it together based on published evidence around other types of um, SARS illness and MERS um, and opinion and consensus and and their own experience. And I wanted to come back to Carl on the evidence point of view here because it's obvious that we need, perhaps, for COVID to start thinking about how we do ongoing research into the long-term effects and perhaps... um, trials of treatment that go beyond what was uh, planned by WHO and other big organisations in terms of immediate acute COVID treatments, in terms of thinking about the longer term care as that becomes more apparent. And I was wondering how that would happen. I think we know the type of research you'd need to see, but who would fund it and how would you go about actually getting support to do it?
2: Yeah, and it's difficult to get funding for Cohort studies, if you like, prospective cohort studies, when you really want to understand, based on the exposures, some of the factors at the front end, what's going to happen over the long term. And there's been a move away from funding that type of research. And I think in this situation, is, um, I think that will be an error. But I think what we, it makes me think about is, one of the areas where I think we've gone wrong in the past is we've separated out communicable disease research and non-communicable disease research. So there's over here a group of people doing cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and over here there's a group of people doing malaria, respiratory pathogens, SARS. And what actually we're talking about here is looking at people in the interaction of the two. We know there are certain features like obesity. We know there are certain features like diabetes that worsen your outcome. There are certain groups that seem to be more disproportionately affected. In the UK, we've seen ethnicity, minority groups, certain occupations worsen outcomes. And I think the combination of those two requires a long-term observational study. Some of it requires in-depth interviews. Some of it can be followed up in some of the clinical practice database to look at the harder outcomes. But I'd also, one thing I'd consider is widening it out just beyond COVID. Because I think this is a relationship within lots of infections. Influenza gives rise to problems. It gives rise to heart attacks, strokes, long-term problems. Anybody who's had a bad bout of influenza will know how debilitating it can be. And so what you want to know is where they're they're similar and where there are some differences as well with COVID.
0: Well, after this goes out, if people are interested in long COVID, then uh, make sure you have subscribed because um, we will have Trish on the pod talking about what she found and uh, you know trying to put that into context for clinicians actually helping people uh, who seem to be experiencing this.
1: As opposed to clinicians like me and Carl who are not helping people. Right <laughs>
0: Talking of long COVID, there was a recent um, all party parliamentary group looking at this and the, the the voices of patients in there talking about medicine to understand about long COVID and, and perhaps research are, are probably well worth listening to if you've got the time. And when I was listening to it, it really made me think back to the Cumberledge report and some of the things that they talked about there and terms of patients being dismissed or not listened to. Um, And Carl, you took part in that Cumberland report, the the Independent Medicines and Medical Devices Safety Review. Could you tell us a little bit about it?
2: Well, a couple of things we've done for some time and I've published in the BMJ is we've been interested in the evidence on uh, transvaginal surgical mesh, not least because there's been a specific problem, a lack of long-term evidence And I could never quite understand how you could inform clear care about here's the benefits and here's the harm if you don't know what happens beyond a year. And many studies were starting to point to huge problems with the levels of complication. Many devices were removed off the market. And that led to us being involved with the patient groups. That then subsequently led to the Primidos group coming to us and saying could we look at the evidence as well around Primidos and we did a systematic review and meta-analysis of that data. That became really interesting, was presented at the Houses of Parliament in a committee uh, uh, meeting there and it sort of snowballed from there the interaction with the patient groups and then finally what happened is it's important if you're involved in an area where you have important evidence or research and Outcomes a review. Everybody has an opportunity to submit evidence. We do that. And if you do that, you might get called along and asked about what do you think is happening? What is the issues at hand? And I think it's an important job as researchers to go out there and explain research findings to a wider audience. In this in this sense, the Cumbridge review team and say, here's what the nuance is here. Here's the biases. Here's what we found. And, yeah, it was a really important if, in part of the work we've done. We had a team of people at the centre working on it and I think the report itself is well worth a read but be careful it's quite a long document.
1: And there were so many findings that I think we should come back to to Cumberledge over the coming weeks and just pick out a few more of the strands.
2: Yeah I think it's important to get some patient perspectives here and we'll go and ask some and think about because one of the things here that we're concerned about which is across the board amongst the patient groups is these are very clear, sensible recommendations. However, will they get enacted? Will they, Or will they be sort of brushed under the carpet? And so, for instance, some of these have been talked about for 15, 20 years, whether it's a conflict of interest register, whether it's been talked about the need for a device database, they've but all on the table. And to some extent, they should have been done previously. And they may not get taken up if we don't have concerted action.
0: Well... There we go, uh, a little trailer for the future. We will be looking at all of the, the various bits of that report. I mean, it really just picks up on, on everything we always talk about in this podcast. Now, I will um, put links to all of the articles, the Drug Treatments for COVID-19, Living Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis, rendezvous for Severe COVID-19, a Clinical Practice Guideline, and Management of Post-Acute, COVID-19 in primary care so those will all go into the podcast text as Helen said you can get in touch with us via rapid responses if you want to tell us something about those articles but if you want to tell us something about the pod then to uh, get in touch on social media um, or go to bmj.com slash podcast where you can find out uh how to drop us a line as always if you've got this far and you haven't subscribed you probably should we're available on apple podcast spotify and wherever else you get your podcasts from but that's it for now we'll be back in a fortnight so it's goodbye from me
1: it's goodbye from me and goodbye from me take care